0: Once again everybody so it is good to see you this morning um, so the last couple weeks we have been going through this series called overcoming temptation uh, this week we're actually moving back kind of working through the book of Luke if you're you haven't been with us this year uh, the book of Luke is kind of our backbone for this year we're, we're going through the story of Luke and then there are different times where uh, something happens in that gospel and we spin off into a conversation the last few weeks we've had a conversation about overcoming temptation and if you weren't here for that I'd encourage you to go back, listen to those. Um, there was a lot that Pastor Corey had to share with us, very practical things uh, when it comes to dealing with temptation. But today we're back, uh, moving through the book of Luke, and we're going to be interacting with some people in the book of Luke that were very, very, very familiar with Jesus. They knew him so well, but their familiarity kind of blinded them to the reality of who he really was it's kind of like I don't know if you've ever seen those challenges where, they'll, where they will take a picture and they'll they'll zoom in really close and they'll say what is this and then they'll slowly zoom out and uh, it's super blurry at first but as it zooms out you realize oh like that thing was super blurry but now I see it's a tree or it's a dog has anyone ever seen those things yeah it's it's kind of like that with these people we're going to interact with the story they 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 just have this picture of who Jesus is they're so familiar with him that they're kind of blind to the reality of who he truly. Was. And so uh, today's message is going to be one that's going to require reflection. You know, sometimes we have sermons or, or messages where there's a lot of very practical, like do this, do this kind of step by step thing. Today, it's going to require us to kind of step into these people's shoes and reflect on ourselves. And I just say that because uh, for some of us that may not be a new thing, but for some of us that might be a difficult thing to try to uh, uh, reflect on our heart, where we're at in life, and different things. And so by the end of today, I'm hoping that you're going to be reflecting on yourself as we process from the story today. But we're in the book of Luke, so feel free to turn there. We're in Luke uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Um, We do have our follow along, so there's a QR code on those cards in the back of your seats. Feel free to to scan that. It'll take you to the verses. It'll take you to all the the stuff for today. But we're in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And this is what it says. It says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. And he taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, He went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. All right, so Jesus, kind of some context for this. Jesus, in the book of Luke, he's just been baptized, and he just went into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tested and tempted by Satan. And we see that he overcomes that temptation, All right, unlike any other person before him. All right, so Adam and Eve... They're tested and tempted. They fail. Every other person tested and tempted failed. Jesus, though, doesn't. He's legit. He's the real deal. And so he comes through the wilderness and then he goes out and he starts teaching and whatnot. And I have a map I want to show you just so we can kind of get our bearings. Uh, This is a map of uh, Israel in the first century. Uh, Israel is about the size of New Jersey. Okay, kind of to give you a perspective there. But that blue circle down uh, towards the bottom is down called what's the Dead Sea. All right, it's called the Dead Sea because there's nothing living in it. All right, it's the lowest point on earth. It's so salty, there's nothing living in it. But that blue circle is around what's called the Judean wilderness. That's probably where Jesus was while he was being tempted. And then after he comes through his 40 days in the wilderness, he heads north to that orange circle, which would have been the region of Galilee, and it's called that because there's a lake called the Sea of Galilee, all right? And so that's where Jesus is, and he's going around, he's teaching, and he's becoming well-known. He's becoming popular. He's essentially going viral, for lack of a better term, all right? And after going viral, he decides to go to his hometown of Nazareth, which you see circled in green there. So Jesus, he goes to his boyhood home, and if you remember the Christmas story, was Jesus born in Nazareth? No, okay, no, he was not born in Nazareth. Where was he born? Bethlehem, all right, you are awake. All right, yeah, he was born in Bethlehem, all right? But he grew up uh, for most of his childhood into his adulthood in Nazareth, all right? So it's his boyhood home. Um, I was born in Ohio. I lived there till I was about five and then moved to Lebanon County, just north of here. And so Lebanon County is kind of this boyhood home for me. When I go there, there's certain towns and places. It's just, it's nostalgic. I drive through it, I'm like, man, I remember... Being there when I was in middle school or high school or whatnot. And I'm sure when Jesus went home to Nazareth, I'm sure there was some nostalgia there. You know, walking into Nazareth, seeing the homes of neighbors and friends, places he maybe ate, places maybe he worked, different things. But he goes home to Nazareth. And remember, he's basically starting to go viral. People are hearing about him, he's becoming popular. And so, as a teacher or what they would call a rabbi, he goes to the synagogue, which was basically the Jewish equivalent of a church. He goes and they let him teach. All right. And so Jesus, he's going to open up the scriptures and teach. And this is what he does. In Luke, And moving on to the next verses, starting in verse 17. It says, The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And we continue into verse 20, and it says, He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. The scriptures you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips how can this be they asked isn't this joseph's son so this might be the greatest mic drop moment of all time all right jesus he's given the scroll of isaiah notice he it says that he 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 finds the spot he's looking for he reads from it and he sits down and all the eyes are on him you just feel the tension and the anticipation in the room and what does he say he says, today, what you've just heard is fulfilled. Now, imagine that if I stood up and opened up the Bible and started reading from it and said, this has been fulfilled. Not 2,000 years ago, not in the future, but right now, as I, Andrew, am saying it. That would kind of get your attention, I, I think. Like, I'm sure it got his first century audience, his hometown audience in the synagogue. They're going, what in the world? What do you mean this is fulfilled? But what Jesus says is is remarkable. He's reading from Isaiah chapter sixty one, verses one and two. Now, I I think there might have been more to what Jesus said. Um, I think what Jesus what's recorded here for us in Luke is accurate. I think it's right. I think it's correct. I think he might have read a little bit more than just two verses. Because if you if you actually look at the quotation, if you could put those verses up, verses eighteen and nineteen for us. If you look at the verses. Um, they're from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Until you get to the part right before verses 19 that says the oppressed will be set free, that's actually from Isaiah 58, verse 6. And there's actually parts of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 that aren't included in this quotation. Now, I bring that up just because people will raise questions like that about the Bible at times and say, hey, it's wrong. It's, it's, no, I don't think it's wrong. I think Luke, who was recording this, was giving us a snapshot of what um, Jesus was trying to convey to his audience, all right? And so he takes passages from Isaiah that Jesus would have read and kind of sums up Jesus' message, the thing he's trying to get across to them. And so this is, if you go to Isaiah 61, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, it reads all that. But Jesus brings up these words, and these words, maybe they don't land for you today, but they would have landed for his hometown audience, because this passage is an amazing passage. Let's, let's see what Jesus says. So it he starts off by reading from Isaiah 61. says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, Isaiah who's recording this, Isaiah isn't saying that he is full of the Spirit and that he's anointed. No, Isaiah is recording this passage from the viewpoint of the Messiah. Now, if you've never heard that word before, that's okay. Messiah. It means anointed one or chosen one. And throughout the Old Testament, there are all these prophecies and descriptions of this coming Messiah who would one day come and do what? Would bring hope, would would save God's people. The, The coming of the Messiah was like the hope for the Jewish people. And they would have heard this passage many times. So when Jesus is reading from it, this would have been a passage like, yeah, I like this passage. We have those types of passages as Christians, right? Those passages we, we just like to go to because they, they give us hope, their promises. It's those passages we put on coffee mugs or on walls or on little baby bibs or different things. We're like, yeah, this is good. You know, in the first century, if they would have had crochet, they would have been crocheting this everywhere, all right? Because this, this is an amazing passage. Again, it's from the vantage point of the Messiah. And the Messiah, the chosen one, he's full of the spirit. He's been anointed by God, to do what? To bring good news to the poor and to proclaim to the captives, to the blind, to the oppressed. So this passage in Isaiah is saying, hey, the Messiah, he's coming, he's full of the spirit, and he's going to proclaim and preach good news to all these kinds of people, to poor people, to captive people, blind people, oppressed people. That's awesome. Now, I think that these verses could definitely do talk about those who are, physically blind, or physically captive, physically oppressed. But I think they go deeper than that. Isaiah is giving us a picture of all humanity because the reality is we've all been spiritually poor. We've all been spiritually captives by sin. We've all been spiritually blinded and oppressed. And so the Messiah is coming to bring hope to all these sorts of people, to lost, broken, hurting people. So again, if you were in Jesus's audience, as you heard this, you'd been like, "Oh yeah, I can't wait. Oh yeah, the Messiah is coming. Yeah, one day he's gonna fix all of this." But the passage actually gets even better. Verse nineteen says, "And that the time of the Lord's favor has come." Now, maybe, maybe that doesn't land for you this morning. It's it's kind of an obscure phrase, but uh, Bible commentators, scholars, they, they look at this verse and they 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 note that it, it's an allusion to what's called. The year of Jubilee. Now, maybe you've heard of that, or maybe you haven't. That's okay. The year of Jubilee is this law taken from the book of Leviticus, one of the first books of the Bible, where God lays out for his people under the leadership of Moses. He lays out all these different laws, and they were laws to help his people learn how to enter into right relationship with him and how to have right life practice so that they could enter into a relationship with him at that time. And in Leviticus chapter 25, we come across this law about the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee is awesome. It was amazing. Basically, what would happen during the year of Jubilee is uh, it would take place every 50 years. All right. So it was the type of thing that might happen once, maybe if you're lucky, twice in your lifetime. And when the year of Jubilee would come, when that 50th year would come, all debts were forgiven. Imagine that. All debts are forgiven. If you were a slave in the land of Israel, you went free. If your family had sold off part of your inherited land, because remember when they entered into the promised land, they divvied up the the promised land by tribe and then by family. If you had sold off part of your family land, maybe to pay debts or different things, you got that land back. All right, the year of Jubilee was a year of restoration, redemption, celebration. It was a year you would look forward to. You would be circling it like on your calendar, like I can't wait till the year of Jubilee comes. All debts are forgiven. And so this claim from Isaiah 61, it's a big claim. It's a claim that one day the Messiah is going to come bring good news to all the hurt, lost, broken people and usher in the Jubilee of Jubilees. The ultimate year of restoration, redemption and celebration. And so again, this was a passage that you would want to memorize, that you would want to hold on to as Jesus' first century audience. And it's a big claim, this claim that, hey, one day a Messiah is going to come. And so let's let's leave ourselves, let's move from the first century synagogue service, and let's come back to us today. How, how does this come across to you? Now, let's first start, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus, maybe you're not a follower of him, and first Thanks for being with us, entering into this conversation. You're always welcome here. Um, but maybe this idea that uh, coming Messiah is going to come, maybe that sounds weird to you or confusing to you or or shocking to you or like, why do we need a Messiah? Like, what's what's the point? And if, if that's how you are feeling today, that's okay. It can be a lot. It can be confusing to think about that. But I, I do want to let you know that as Jesus followers, we believe this has taken place we believe that jesus is the messiah who come, that he came that he is the chosen one that has ushered in good news and is ushered in the jubilee of jubilees and it's all centered around the cross where jesus came and he bled on the cross and he died for our sins and that's what cancels all our sin and debt and brings us back in the right relationship with god so if you're here today and you're not a jesus follower i just want you to know like we believe that jesus actually did fulfill this And he ushered in this restoration that we all can participate in. But if you're here today and you are a Jesus follower, whether that's been for a few few weeks, months, years, maybe you've been a Jesus follower for decades. How does this passage land with you? This idea that Jesus is the the Messiah who's going to bring in uh, restoration and forgiveness of sins. You've probably heard that sort of stuff before. I would, I'm guessing. I know you've heard it here at GFC. This idea that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's the Savior of the world. And I ask that because I think we can hear these types of messages. We can hear the message of the gospel so much that sometimes we get desensitized to it. Well, we're going to jump into that in just a little bit. But let's go back to Jesus. Where is Jesus at again? He's in the city of Nazareth, which is what happened where he grew up yep yep just make it sure you're awake yeah he's in Nazareth his hometown he's surrounded by people he knows from when he was a boy and imagine put yourself in their shoes again how would you feel hearing this this guy that you grew up knowing how would you feel having him say hey yeah I'm fulfilling this like imagine if that kid that you grew up next door to, or maybe that kid you babysat when they were younger, or that person you worked with years ago comes back into your life, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm the president of the United States. Like, they just drop a truth bomb like that and expect you to believe it. Like, that would be like, like, come on, that's not true. I'm sure you've experienced something like that. I've experienced things like that. I experience things like that all the time on Facebook, where I have Someone I've known, I've become Facebook friends with them. um, Probably sometimes from years ago, I've I've known them for a long time, and I have a picture of them in my brain. And I know that their life hasn't frozen, but in my brain, like this is who they are. And then one day, a picture of them pops up or a status, and I'm like, "Oh, I didn't know you were doing that." Or, "Oh, is this the same person? Like, what's going on?" Like, I had a friend who I knew for for a while. I worked with him at a summer camp, and. Um I hadn't seen him in a long time and one day he posts a picture of him standing on Air Force 1. Now if you know what Air Force 1 is, it's the plane the president flies around in. Like it's not a plane you just can just walk up to and just get on to. And it was he just like posts just a picture of him on Air Force 1. It's like what happened? Like is this a good thing? Like what what's going on? And so sometimes there's the, these these types of things happen to us. Where we're familiar with somebody, we have a version of them in our brain, and then a truth bomb gets dropped or a status update, and you're like, it kind of throws you for a whirl. And I'm sure that Jesus' audience, as they were listening to him, like, who is this guy? Isn't this Jesus? Because if we move forward to uh, verses 20, and 21, they, they actually ask Jesus, they, they're, they're, they're asking, they're saying, how can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows um, how they're feeling. And so he responds to them. And this is what he says, moving on into verses 23. He says, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. So Jesus, he, he knows what they're thinking. He knows that they're questioning and um, I can understand why they would be questioning. Um, we learned from some of the other gospels that they they weren't just questioning; they were doubting, like they were really doubting Jesus. And so Jesus, he he says this proverb: "Physician, hear yourself." And then he explains it. He says, meaning, do miracles here in your hometown, like that you did in Capernaum. Basically, what they're saying is, hey, you're just making these claims. Prove it. Just do some miracles and prove it. And we actually learn from some of the other gospels that have this story in it, that Jesus did kill some people, and yet they still don't believe, all right? And so they're they're really doubting, and Jesus says, he says, but I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. He's basically saying, you're doubting, you want me to prove it, you're not going to honor me anyway. And so Jesus goes on, and he's, he says something, um, he continues And he makes, he doesn't answer them the way they want him to answer them. He doesn't try to prove his messiahship. He then goes and starts talking about his mission. And I want you to hear this, and then I want you to see how they react. All right? So Jesus continues and says, Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. And then this is their reaction to it. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious, jumping up they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built they intended to push him over the cliff but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way i wish they would have given us more detail in verse 30 how did jesus pass through the crowd something miraculous happens we don't know but Think about that reaction that these people have to Jesus. What just happened? This just escalated so fast. One minute, Jesus is talking to them in the synagogue. The next moment, they're at a cliff ready to push him off. This is the guy they knew from childhood. You know, I know sometimes when we return to maybe um, past relationships or friendships and we go and interact with people or family we haven't seen for a long time, I know sometimes those situations can be a little sticky and they can be difficult and arguments can happen. But this is like a whole new level, all right? Jesus, he's with these people and they want to push him over a cliff. It's escalated that quickly. I've never been in a family situation like that. Maybe you have, but if you have, Jesus can relate, all right? So the question is, why are these people so upset at Jesus? Well, let's go back to to, verse, to the, the previous section where it talks about Elijah and elisha because jesus basically he just brings up two stories and these two stories land in their brain so powerfully that they want to kill jesus and the first story he brings up is about a guy named elijah he was a prophet in the old testament from first kings 17 and then elisha was elijah's successor but elijah in his story there's this famine in the land of israel and god tells elijah to go to a widow And God miraculously provides food for for Elijah, this widow, and her son. But the thing is, was this widow an Israelite? Yes or no? Was she an Israelite? Not an Israelite. No, she wasn't an Israelite. She was a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. The next story about Elisha, it's this story from 2 Kings chapter 5. And in this story, there's this military commander named Naaman... And he, he has leprosy, which is a terrible, terrible skin disease. And he hears that maybe in Israel he could be cured. And so he goes to Israel, and God uses Elisha to heal him. Again, was Naaman an Israelite? Yes or no? No, he wasn't. He was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew. And so Jesus brings up these stories and points out that, hey, in the past... God used his prophets to help and to heal and to save, not just the Israelites. So, this is what, what Jesus is trying to get across to his audience. He's clarifying his mission as the Messiah. Rather than just try to prove it to them, he's like, I'm going to tell you what I'm here to do. And it's, Jesus is basically saying that just as God cared for Gentiles in the past, the mission of the Messiah is for the Gentiles too. And this was a huge deal in the brains of his hometown crowd. Because in their minds, the Messiah was going to come and not just save, not just, he wasn't going to come save the Gentiles. He was going to come save Israel from the Gentiles. Because who was ruling over Israel at this time? Rome. Rome was ruling over. They were being oppressed. They felt like captives. They felt oppressed by the Gentiles, and so they were hoping, they were holding on to this promise of the Messiah, thinking he's going to come, boom, get rid of the Gentiles, and Jesus says, uh I'm here for you, but I'm also here for them, and they can't handle it. They're so frustrated, they want to throw Jesus over a cliff. They were expecting the Messiah, they would have been so thrilled about this reading from Isaiah 61, but they can't handle the truth, that the Messiah isn't just there for them. And this is the reality. Jesus came for all of us, kind of coming back into our 21st century. Jesus is here for all of us. Not just me, not just the person next to you, but to you as well. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you are doing. Jesus is here for you. It doesn't matter your gender, your, your your political beliefs. It doesn't matter any of those things. We're all sinful, broken people in need of a Messiah, in need of the Savior. And so Jesus is here for us. He's here for not even just you, but he's here for those people around you, maybe that you don't like so much. He's here for our enemies as well, because the reality is we were all enemies of Jesus. We were all enemies of God in our sin before he died for us and before we accepted his grace. And his hometown crowd can't wrap their brain around it. They have a picture of who Jesus is, and they have a picture of what the Messiah should be. That it's, They're so familiar with it that they've become blinded to it. They're blinded to the reality of who Jesus really is. And so Jesus' message to his hometown is this, that not only am I the Messiah, but my mission of good news isn't just for you. It's for all people. It's for Gentiles too. And we need to see that, that Jesus' ministry doesn't just include you and me. It includes everyone else outside these walls. As well, the people we love and the people we struggle to love. But I, whatever I want us to land for the rest of our time is, I want us to reflect on the people of Nazareth. I want us to try to put ourselves into their shoes even more, because here's the thing: I think that sometimes familiarity can blind us to reality. Sometimes we can become so familiar with something that we, we get a certain version of it in our head and then we become blinded to what's actually happening. That's hap- that happens to me on Facebook when I get a version of someone in my brain and then I get a status update from them. It's like, oh, it, what, what's going on? I think this happens when we argue. When you get in a heated argument with somebody and you, it's like right there, it's fresh in your brain and you know you're right and you know they're wrong. And so you go at it and then you maybe a couple hours go by, you step away and you zoom out from it, and you get a better perspective. Or a couple days go by, and you realize, I was a jerk. Or you realize, they made some good points. But in the moment, it's so familiar, it's so close, you're blinded to reality. This happens uh, sometimes in relationships, where people, they, they enter into a relationship, and they're so infatuated with the person that um, they, they're blinded to red flags in the relationship, but everyone else clearly sees it. Again, sometimes that familiarity can blind us to reality. And the question is, um, can this happen to us? Because familiarity blinded them to the reality of Jesus and what his mission was. And so the question is, do you think this ever happens to us today? Do we as Jesus followers, whether you've been a Jesus follower for a few months, or a few years, or for decades, do you ever think we get a picture or a version of Jesus in our brain or a picture or a version of this is what it means to be a Christian that we just kind of go on autopilot or we just kind of get desensitized to the truth of the gospel and we just kind of go through the motions. I think this happens all the time. I know it happens 100% in Andrew's heart where I, I just get so fixated on like, oh yeah, I know what the gospel is, check. I know that I shouldn't lie, check. I know that I should go to church, check. And I, I get so used to the things that this version of Christianity in my brain, this version of Jesus in my brain that I actually just kind of, just kind of coast. And I miss out on the fact that Jesus has more to teach me about him And Jesus has a mission in this world that he's called me to enter into. Because the good news that Isaiah 61 talks about, we, if you're a Jesus follower here today, you've received that good news. But are we supposed to just hold on to that good news? What do you think? Are we supposed to just hold on to it? Jesus, before he leaves his disciples in Matthew 28, says, go and make disciples just by yourself, don't don't tell anybody, right? Is that what he says? No, no. He says, go make disciples of all nations. So I think that we sometimes, again, I'll, I guess I'll just talk for myself. I sometimes can be just like the people of Nazareth. I don't want to throw Jesus off a cliff, but I get so accustomed to this is who Jesus is and that I, I don't really want him to challenge me to new things, I don't want to enter into new mission for him. I I get desensitized to the gospel. And guys, we can't get desensitized to the gospel. We need it every single day. The gospel is not just the door into the kingdom of God. It's 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 the remedy for everyday life. Think about it. The God of the universe let's just start there. There's a God over the whole universe who created every single atom including every part of you. He thought it was a good idea to make you. He didn't not want to make you. And he knits you together in your mother's womb. And then you were born and he's provided for you. And then when you sinned and rebelled against him, rather than just saying, you know what, I'm done with you. He says, I'm going to bleed for you. I'm going to give everything. I'm going to give my life for you so that you could have life. He gave you initial life and then he gave you redeemed life. And that is the greatest news ever spoken in the history of forever. And yet, why is it that Andrew sometimes forgets that? Why is it that sometimes I go through life and I sing the worship songs about his amazing grace and I just kind of coast and I get so fixated on the issues of my current day and my current life that I forget the fact that I'm made alive in God and I have eternity to look forward to. With him. Again, I think sometimes as Jesus followers, we can become so accustomed to what it means to be a Christian or what it means to hear the gospel that we get desensitized to the awe and wonder and majesty of our Lord. And so we have to reflect on that. Have you ever been on vacation somewhere? Like you go somewhere so scenic. Maybe it's the mountains. Who who are the mountains people in here? Nice, those are my people. Who are the the ocean people in here? All right. I take a lot of sunscreen to the ocean when I go. All right. But you've been to those places, amazing, beautiful places, huge mountains, pristine waters, or really awesome like historical sites where there's just, like I can't believe this happened here. And you go, and there's the local people there who are just so used to like that place that they're like, yeah, this is nice, this is good, but they don't have the same awe and wonder That you have because maybe it's your first time there I think that happens to us sometimes with the gospel as we just become desensitized to how amazing it truly is that we were once dead and we're now alive and so again like I said earlier today's our conversation we need to reflect and I have two main questions I want us to reflect on and the first one is this have I become so familiar with my version of Jesus that I've stopped pursuing Jesus? Do you get what that, that means? You get, so, you, you, you get used to this idea of being a Jesus follower, again, that you just kind of coast. And you've stopped actually saying, you know what? I need to pursue him. Our faith isn't just a, a dead, stagnant religion ours we believe in a relationship with the god of the universe let me ask you if you if you stop pursuing someone in a relationship you know maybe you ghost them and you, and you don't message them back you don't you don't talk to them or different things like um how how healthy is that relationship it's not very healthy a relationship has to be this active pursuit going after that person whether and we know that whether that's you're married or you're not when you have a friendship or a relationship in order for that relationship to be cultivated there has to be pursuit in some way shape or form and i think sometimes we can get used to our version of jesus that we just expect him to pursue us which he does and he wants to but he's also called us in that relationship with him so let's get our reflecting hats on how are you doing pursuing jesus Were there any moments of pursuit this past week? Any intentionality at all where you said, you know what? I want to grow closer to Jesus. And I don't think that means every moment of every day, we're going to have this fireworks moment where it's, like, yay, Jesus. But it does take intentionality and a willingness to say, you know what? I'm going to try to know you better. Does your relationship with Jesus look the same last year at this time as it does today? Has there been any change at all? Whether like you're going through challenges and Jesus is using that challenge to weed out sin issues or patterns or bad habits in your life or, or he's, he's bringing into your, to your life different challenges to test you and, and to grow you closer to him or like is there anything at all or is it literally the same? And if it is, what pursuit moment could you find this week to draw closer to Jesus? Second thing I want us to reflect on today is this. This is the last question. Have I become so comfortable with my Christian life that I've stopped being a Christian on mission? Jesus intentionally, when he went to Nazareth, remember when he opened up the school of Isaiah? It says that like he went to the place he was looking for. Like He intentionally was looking for that passage and wanted to share with his hometown. This is who I am. And my mission, I'm on mission. I'm here not to just save you, but to save all people. And as Jesus followers, we're called to enter into that mission. We don't save people. We don't have to carry that burden. Only Jesus can. But he does want us to enter into the mission, to share him with others, to love this world. And so, have we become so comfortable with our version of Jesus? Just so comfortable where we become so familiar that we're just kind of coasting. Rather than intentionally saying, what is Jesus calling me to in my family, in my job, in my church, in my community? Who is it that I can love and serve and care for? And so maybe maybe this is something you haven't thought about recently. But maybe today, this week, try to think about a person or two. Somebody who you could be praying for. Someone who you could be pursuing and talking to. I get it. It's easy to get so busy with life, to jam-pack our schedules full. And to be honest, it's so easy to push out any margin to actually stop and reflect. But we need that. Jesus, at times, during his ministry, stopped and went off. Before Jesus starts his ministry, he spends 40 days alone with God in the wilderness. If Jesus needed time to reflect, we certainly do, too. Even more so. And so today and this week, honestly, think about and reflect on these things. I'd like to call the band up. We're going to get ready to sing one more song. But before we do that, I just want to remind you of the mission of Jesus. Remember Isaiah 61, he says that he's come to bring good news to the poor, to the captive, to the oppressed. I have personally found in my life that the easiest way to stay motivated in pursuing Jesus and living on mission for Jesus is to constantly go back to the reality of the gospel. That I was once dead and he made me alive. And the more I I think about and reflect on how sinful and and dead in my sin I was and how holy and awesome our God is and that just expanse of how separated I was from him, as that becomes bigger in my brain. And then I realized that the cross reaches across that. His love grows in my my mind and in my heart. And it makes me want to love others the way he has loved me. And so today and this week, come back to the gospel. Find moments of pursuit and moments of mission. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we can gather this morning. And that we can see this example from from your time in ministry. I ask and pray that you help all of us to reflect on you. For any non-believers in here, may they reflect and ask questions and become curious about who you are and may you speak to them personally, draw them to you. Lord, I pray for any, anyone in here who's struggling and doubting and, and just not sure that you're really there. Thank you that they're asking those questions and may they take them to you. You can handle all of those things. I pray and ask that we will not become blinded by our familiarity, but that will continually push the boundaries, pursuing the reality of who you truly are. Thank you for loving us.